the Jungle Times, a podcast that explains how understanding nature's management principles can help you enhance your personal power and leadership skills. In a world beset by climate change, mass migration, and social unrest, fake news and bad politics are threatening the future of our planet. This series of timely presentations will demonstrate how nature's 4.5 billion years of success is based on the emergence of creative leaders. It is my pleasure to introduce your guide, the only researcher on Earth who treks tropical jungles in a wheelchair, author and training consultant, Lawrence Poole. Welcome to the Jungle Times podcast. I'm Lawrence Poole, and this is episode 10, The Five Sacred Arts, Part two. In part one, I told you about the first two of five sacred arts that I learned in my fourth death experience, also called the five strategic roles that a leader must play. We can be stalkers of information, dreamers of possibility, seers of opportunity, leaders in action to adjust, and persuasive communicators. So I told you all about the first two roles stalking and dreaming. In our ancestral beginnings, we had mastered the art of stalking, or what anthropologists call persistent hunting. They describe our ability to track down prey with uncanny success. In these modern times, I said we can learn to use those ancient skills to stalk anything we need, to survive and prosper in this world. More than survive, Nature's laws are meant for us to thrive. In that presentation, I also explain how the art of dreaming depends on acquiring the ability to exercise a certain mastery over your cognitive abilities. You learn to navigate your mind from its normal awareness in the beta brainwave states, as measured on the EEG, to reach the omega point, or the state of superconsciousness the limitless oscillations of vibrating energy of universe, the L-O-V-E, the love of God. Described as nirvana, illumination, or Christ consciousness, from that I am state of mind, the alpha, theta, and delta brainwaves are experienced as the morphic realm, the world of dreams. This time, I'm going to tell you about the three other roles we can play. We can be seers, leaders, and persuasive communicators. I first introduce you to all of these roles in episode number four, How Nature Favors Creative Leaders. So you might want to listen to that podcast too. It'll explain how we are biologically equipped to profit from each of these five roles. Last time I told you that while in a lucid dream, I entered what can best be described as a telepathic contact with my holy guardian angel. It was like a stream of consciousness that was a lot wiser, more intelligent than me. It was explaining why these five roles is the key to a blessed life. I could learn how to live in a state of grace. In this podcast, I'll share some of what I learned about living strategically. I'll also tell you what that nurse who watched over my body during the fourth death experience told me when I came back to life. I've already explained how practicing stalking can get us anything we want in this world, so I hope you started practicing it yourself. 
I also said the mastery of dreaming allows us to dream ourselves into the higher spiritual dimensions, so you would profit from managing your dream state too. Anthropologist Carlos Castaneda wrote 10 books about his apprenticeship into a tradition of pre-Columbian sorcerers. He found that the art of stalking could be used to explore matters of the heart. The art of dreaming is best for solving affairs of the mind. And the art of seeing has to do with physically handling the creative intent that is animating the world. I'll add to Castaneda's findings that the art of leadership demands that we govern ourselves according to Creator's law, and how communications as an art form can be very persuasive. My holy guardian angel told me that practicing the art of seeing required that I first develop a relationship with intent. Intent was described as a quality of the universe, like the creative spirit. Handling intent requires that we learn certain skills that allow us to draw the very best from any given situation. The artistic aspect of seeing has to do with preparing ourselves to be lucky by being ready to act decisively when an opportunity presents itself. If you realize that luck can be described as hiding where preparation meets opportunity, well then you can see that those ancient pre-Columbian chiefs were learning how to be successful. They were embodying the key to modern day success too. Today's experts agree that a successful career includes mastering intent, skills, love, discipline, and luck. I found my great lesson on being a seer of opportunity by watching the howler monkeys that took residence at Mayamu, the jungle park we created in Costa Rica. Those monkeys knew exactly when to pick what fruit from which of the 500 trees that we planted. One day, when I got to the park after an absence of several months, Sergio, our caretaker, told me the jackfruit have produced their first crop. Excited and curious, I asked him what they tasted like, and he answered, I don't know. The Congos gorge on them when they are not ripe. We both knew the fruit can dangerously drop a consumer's blood sugar and can even be fatal. We suppose that the Congo, or the howler monkey, might have a stomach enzyme that neutralizes the negative effects. They know how to seize every opportunity a garden provides, and they will howl like banshees if I dare help myself to even one of my own bananas. As he did with stalking and dreaming, my holy guardian angel reminded me of occasions when I acted like a seer of opportunity. He narrated a time that I opened a dance hall when I was 17 years old. The summer I graduated from high school, the part of town where I lived had nothing to amuse young people except playgrounds, libraries, and swimming pools. I thought the neighborhood needed a hall for Friday night and Saturday night dances. And without having two cents to rub together, I made deals with the owner of a new reception hall on a prominent street and with a friend who had a rock band and would do three shows a night. I also had a very good artist friend draw a bunch of posters. I bartered with a DJ who had equipment on a percentage deal. A music store owner lent me spotlights, mics, and amps in exchange for promoting his place. And I gave a free pass to a bunch of students to pass the word around by putting my cool posters 
at every high school hangout for miles around. A long story made short, I sold out opening night and made a small fortune. The project was win-win-win for everybody involved. As I remembered counting the hundreds of dollars in my cash box, my Holy Guardian Angel remarked that I'd started with nothing but an idea and had overcome significant odds to extract the very best from that situation, just like a seer of opportunity. I awoke from my fourth death experience as if from a deep sleep. The infection had abated and I soon recovered. After, and for many months, my Holy Guardian Angel coached me in practices related to handling intent. An important aspect of the practice is pattern recognition. In psychology, pattern recognition is described as the process wherein we match information from outside stimulus with information from our own memory. With the term, I mean to express a bit more than that. Pattern recognition is a component of the standard IQ test and it sees itself as the ability to recognize patterns and to put order into data. Pattern recognition allows us to discern the anomalies and disorder that also exist. In my example, I knew what the neighborhood had to offer. I then knew what it didn't have, and in the need I perceived an opportunity. The skills required to recognize patterns, once developed, have applications in any kind of analysis. You can soon rely on your ability to effectively process signals and read moods. It is excellent for gleaning information from any event or situation, letting you separate the wheat from the chaff. I remember a meeting with a CEO of a public utility company and several of his minions. It quickly became apparent to me that one of the minions was getting cues on how to answer. I scanned the room and saw that he was tuning into the veins on his CEO's neck. Depending on how the vein throbbed or relaxed, the young assistant rejected or accepted whatever was proposed. Other minions took their lead from him. I was outnumbered, but not defeated. I focused on making an emotional connection with the CEO and then guided him to see my proposal in terms of higher values. I raised it to something more than what you should or should not like. Once the proposal was described as something that you must do, then we easily negotiated the details. My holy guardian angel had pointed out to me that in the ebb and flow of the dialogue, when I saw mood swings and the shifts in the communication, my capacity to stand back and look to the source of the chaos allowed me to quickly see the pattern and then to adjust. Many years later, I was happy to host my grandsons who visited our corner of Costa Rica. They knew all about our adventures in the jungle, as I have a computer app that lets me drag and drop photos into a comic book template. I regularly email them a PDF with a comic book story that always ended with some creature, a bug, bird, or beast, greeting them by name. When we visit, we often discuss how to prosper in the social and business jungles. So this trip was an opportunity to teach them how to survive in the rainforest jungle. They remembered that I strap a machete to the frame of my jungle chair and were anticipating getting their own. The morning after their arrival, I outfitted each of them with a good machete and scabbard. Don't leave home without it. Next, moving from place to place, I often stopped at a high point 
to show them how to map out a territory. Costa Rica is very mountainous, so this was a particularly useful exercise. From the high point, we can see how everything below is laid out. Take a moment to orient yourself. North, east, west, south. What is down there? How are things moving? Look for the flow. Every place has a high spot, and that is where you can map out a territory. There is power in maps. They're like windows of information that allow us to explore a worldview, to understand it better, and to engage with it productively. Maps give us a way to synthesize information that provide insights, to establish boundaries, to spur action, or to build bridges to a better world. I gave the boys notes on what to expect, the kind of flora and fauna they could expect to find in Costa Rica, the popular foods, the fruit juices, the adventures, the attractions. Equipped with machetes and their maps, ready to explore the jungle, we took the boys to a spot that looked up into the jungle canopy. They were to practice gazing. Staring and gazing both mean to fix your eyes on something with a degree of intensity and anticipation. Staring implies having a certain impudence when you're looking, while gazing means to look with wonder and respect. I directed them to look intently and to try to discern the movement of the jungle canopy. More than 80% of everything that lives in a rainforest is in that canopy, so I asked them to look up and find the natural flow, the wind's movement, the heat exchange and steam, the lights and shadow, the colors, the hues of green. And I told them, when you find the flow, with your peripheral vision, scan for anomalies. And there, in the interruptions to the normal flow, you'll find the wild things. I remember the look of pure joy on the youngest lad's face when he held in his hands a red-eyed tree frog he had stalked. They shared a moment, and then the Agalicus calidrius was set down on a leaf, and I sang Born Free. Many lessons were passed along on that holiday. If you visit a jungle, first make sure you have the right tools, that you are equipped for the journey. Next, look for a high spot so you can map out the territory. Once in the thick of it, slow down, gaze at the melee, and find the flow. Dart your eyes to the periphery and look for anomalies. Next, to be a seer of opportunity, I learned to create a primary sensation event. The term describes the first impression created in the minds of people who meet you. And there's an idea that covers what I mean. It says, you don't get a second chance to make a good first impression, but you do get a chance. What do you want people who meet you to remember from your encounter? Give it some thought. Bad and stupid people will have that I don't give a shit attitude what others think, you know. But that's not particularly strategic. In the game of life, winning first means that people want to play with you. Can you charm others? Are you love-able? Lovable? You'll be thought a good person if you are stable, even when outside factors, like the political climate or the business environment, are challenging. Rudyard Kipling has a poem called If that addresses this very idea. He begins by saying, 
If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it all on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but still make allowances for their doubting. He goes on and concludes with the famous line, If you do all of this, then yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And much more, you'll be a man, my son. By making a good first impression, you can manage the mood of a meeting. You can build a positive engram. An engram is defined as a unit of emotional information stored in the brain and set to respond as a memory. How do you suppose others will remember you? Will your encounter be remembered as positive, as joyful? Did you impress the other as someone who is promising, simply pleasant, or did you seem dangerous or a threat or a waste of time? Do we believe that you are a leader, a follower, or a clown? To develop the ability of creating a good first impression, you might want to take an acting class or a course on self-expression, or at least hire a coach. When I was just starting out, I soon realized that while I could make my point in small groups, I choked when in front of a larger crowd. I addressed it by joining Toastmasters International, an educational club with branches in cities worldwide. Members gather for the unique purpose of learning how to speak in public. After learning how to use certain tools and techniques and putting in a few hours of practice, I transcended my shortcomings and actually enjoyed public speaking. I soon won a Toastmasters Regional Championship. To learn more on how to create a good impression, you can start by reading Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, which you can download free online. I'll put a link with the description to this presentation. By becoming a seer of opportunity, I learned to draw the very best from any given situation. After developing a certain skill in pattern recognition and how to project a positive impression, I was coached in the art of principled negotiation. This is an ethics-based technique that's focused on managing a group's common interests to find mutual gains. The first principle in this kind of negotiation is to separate the people from the problem. This will apply to all interactions between all parties in all negotiations. The idea is to manage a task at hand, the negotiation process, and the perceptions, emotions, and communications flow of the participants are separate from that. Negotiators are held to be people with values, cultural backgrounds, and emotional paradigms. These will vary widely. Your interaction can be helpful or disastrous. The negotiation will build trust or lead to frustration and dissatisfaction for all of those involved. You'll tend to get entangled in trivia and pettiness when real problems are not discussed. Incorrectly supposing the intentions of the other party based on our own ideas is a common mistake. This kind of bad habit hurts the possibility of reaching agreement. There's a wonderful guidebook produced by the Harvard Negotiating Project called Getting to Yes. It explains why our feelings are just as important as the content of a negotiation. Communication is the key to successfully negotiating, and the guide warns us about three common mistakes. One is not speaking honestly with the other party 
but instead trying to impress your own side instead of working hard towards mutual agreements. Two is not listening to the other side, but instead only hearing them to rebut their statements. And three is misunderstanding or misinterpreting what the other side is really saying, not allowing for differences in paradigm or culture. There'll be a link to a free PDF copy of that book with the description to the podcast. People's interests are generally satisfied by something they value. Respect that idea and you'll move a step forward in understanding behavior in negotiation. The second principle is to focus on common interests, not on positions. You must consider both the position the other party holds and the interest it has in that position. Then you focus on your interests in the position the other party holds. What are the points of commonality that exist with both positions? Those who manifest all or nothing views most often end with nothing. It is crucial to put yourself in the mindset of the other side to understand why they are acting the way they are, rather than focusing on why they aren't more like us. People shape their interests around their basic needs. A third principle of negotiation is invent options for mutual gain. Try to satisfy the needs of both sides by finding a lot of options that can have an impact in a positive way. Make sure everyone feels that they're being cared for. Listen to the other side and do not make any decisions until both parties have been adequately heard. All of you must be given the opportunity to clearly express your intentions and what you hope to gain from the negotiation. A fourth principle insists on using objective criteria. Make sure conversations stay on topic and remain productive by making deals based on an objective and practical criteria. The three steps to assessing objective criteria are A. Find out what the other party's intentions are. B. Keep an open mind. And C. Don't use pressure or threats, nor give in to pressure or threats. Each party must commit to discussing the intent for principal negotiations based on ethics. The fifth principle of negotiation is to know your mana. I use the acronym M-A-N-N-A to mean your most advantageous non-negotiated accord, or what's your bottom line. In the biblical story, God rained mana down on the Jewish people in their time of exodus out of Egypt. Mana was said to be a magical substance that sustained people by filling their minimum needs. The only condition was that everyone had to gather his or her own mana, and they had to wake up before sunrise to harvest sufficient mana for that day only. Consider that no method of negotiation between people can guarantee success. So what is your bottom line? What are the minimum requirements that you have to fill? At what point do you walk away from the negotiation and put your faith elsewhere? What is the best deal you can reasonably expect to make if you don't reach a negotiated agreement? Mana is your most advantageous non-negotiated accord. There are three considerations when you are negotiating with someone who has more power than you. The first one is protect yourself at all times, 
respect your mana. The second one is to use all the power from all of your assets, including associates and colleagues, to face the other party. The third consideration is to insist that the process always adhere to principles and ethics. Before making a final decision, you may want to take a step back and consider all the possible options before issuing a pronouncement. You not only must have negotiated a fair deal, you must appear to fairly have negotiated it. Seeing has to do with the mastery of intent. It is the cornerstone to magic. The premise stems from the idea that there's a quantum reality that we are not participating in, but that we can become aware of and profit from. I use the word quantum to mean indivisible. I refer to the world of energy as explained with Albert Einstein's E equals MC squared equation and ratified by Max Planck's E equals HF, which explains that energy is a constant frequency. The universe can then be observed as limitless oscillations of vibrating energy or as love, L-O-V-E, the love of God. The awareness of that is arranged in terms of subjective knowns, unknowns, and unknowable. And not everyone is participating at that level of understanding. I suggest you forget about the unknowable, because it is, by definition, unknowable. That means you only need to deal with the known and the unknown. My holy guardian angel explained that both have a quality. The quality of the known is that it is not universal. Not everyone has the same information. But everyone does have some information. As such, the known can be shared. The quality of the unknown is that it is not the unknowable. It can become known. It will reveal itself if it is questioned. The known can be explored willfully. This is why the mastery of intent benefits from the art of stalking. Stalkers can generate a barrage of questions and force the unknown to reveal itself. Knowing where to find answers to questions is a key to success. Imagine mastering a situation because you practice a few simple skills, like pattern recognition, how to create a positive impression, and how to engage in principal negotiations. Because luck is found there where preparation meets opportunity, you can practice getting lucky. Think about it. I'll be right back to share some of what I learned about the art of leadership. The bottom line is this. Most people aren't leaders. They don't have a plan of action designed to fill their needs. Many have no real goals in life, no ambitions, and some don't even have the desire to make things better. We were told by the Walden Pond philosopher Henry David Thoreau that the mass of men lead quiet lives of desperation. He discovered that most people do not have a strategic intent, so they do not exercise the leadership role in their own life. Interestingly, the word strategy is derived from the Greek word strategia, which means to lead. As such, to be strategic means to take a lead in your life and realize a plan for its success. 
I know some people have long-term financial plans, but that is much too limited an idea. Nature suggests we invest in our creative capital. In episode number three of the podcast, I explain the nine management principles that compel us to empower ourselves. That means that every individual, without exception, should learn the strategic arts required to fill his or her needs. We are equipped to be stalkers who seek out information, dreamers who generate possibilities, seers who create opportunities, leaders who act to adjust, and then communicators who must be persuasive. In my seminars and workshops, I always explain why leaders should dedicate themselves to heuristic learning. The best reason is because understanding follows experience. There's an Emmy Award-winning TV show called Undercover Boss, where a high-level corporate executive secretly takes a low-level job in his company to find out how things really work and what employees truly think about working there. The findings always come as a huge surprise. Our perceptions, and thereby our opinions, are severely limited by our neurological paradigms. Our experiences have etched links between the neurons in our brain, creating patterns. We can consciously choose to create new patterns that we'll later need. In an easy example, if you want to be an engineer, you must etch a whole new slew of mathematical formulae in your brain. These will later be shortcuts in your engineering work. Wikipedia describes heuristic learning as an approach that focuses on self-discovery. The idea is to create an agenda with a curriculum that lets you experience learning goals. If you want to own a B&B, for example, first spend a weekend in one, as a guest, and then volunteer to work in one later on. You can use both experiences as a technique to recall information. An important fact of human cognition is that understanding follows experience. In fact, strategies required to break out of our closed-loop thinking, because as soon as we try to actualize a plan based on our beliefs, well then, shit happens. As you probably know, events and circumstances tend to interfere with even the best-laid plans of mice and men. Beliefs have dragged a lot of leaders into the deep doo-doo. There are reasons psychologists say we should adopt heuristic learning in our daily lives, why we should orchestrate experiences to learn from. The brain benefits from having mental strategies that simplify things. This so we don't spend too much time analyzing every detail before making the hundreds of decisions that we make every day. We decide what to have for breakfast, what to wear, who to hire or fire, when to go home at night. Heuristic learning helps us cope with a tremendous amount of information by speeding up our decision-making process. When my daughter was in high school and wondering what she would do as a career, she thought that she might enjoy police work. She found a volunteer ride-along program and signed on. Three months later, she knew that she would not pursue that career. She knew the aspects that she liked, public service and action, and what she didn't like. She volunteered as a first responder for many years while holding high-level executive positions just to fulfill these items that she liked. 
Heuristic training allows us to learn enough about a subject to make good decisions without a lot of anxiety. As an example, because understanding follows experience, as you are planning a next meeting, you imagine the route you'll travel, but suddenly remember that there's some heavy construction on the way, and you realize this will slow your progress and it might cause you to be late. So based on your experience, you plan to leave a little sooner and take an alternate route. Heuristic learning allows you to see possible outcomes and arrive at alternate solutions. There are several kinds of heuristic learning applications, and each plays a role in decision-making. They should be used in context, so knowing about them will let you decide which will serve you best. There's the availability heuristic, in which you make decisions based on your past experiences. How easy is it for you to bring a scenario to mind? If you must make a decision without having all the facts, try to recall a relevant example of the situation. Is there something similar available in your memory? Do past experiences make it easier to see a solution and outcomes? Have common components of the experience or similar situations occurred in your life? As an example, if you fly often, you can easily imagine a typical trip. The airport services, the check-in procedures, the boarding sequences, and that will help you decide a whole series of choices and options. Examples of air disasters are not imagined because you don't want to cancel the trip and miss an opportunity. The availability heuristic leads you to suppose that plane crashes are rarer than they really are. Next is what we call the representation heuristic. It's about decisions made after comparing a situation to the most representative mental image that you have. If you don't have the experience, look into something that's like it. If you're trying to decide if someone is trustworthy, for example, you might compare what you know about trust to the person you're looking at. If you think your gentle, kind grandmother represents the epitome of trustworthiness, you might assume someone trustworthy should be gentle and kind. To move beyond that neurological representation, you must establish objective criteria to describe trustworthiness. Carry note cards and put your candidates to the test. And then there's the heuristic effect, which is making choices influenced by the emotion we experience in the moment. Research has shown us that people who are more likely to see their decisions as having great benefit and low risk when they are in a positive mood. Negative emotions, on the other hand, cause people to focus on the potential downsides of a decision and the risks of a situation rather than possible benefits. We decide yes or no emotionally and then find the logic to justify it. Lastly, what is called the anchoring bias is the heuristic involved in our tendency to be greatly influenced by the first bit of information that we learn. This tendency makes it more difficult for us to consider other factors and options or to allow for contrary views as they emerge. Anchoring ideas can lead us to poor choices. For example, our anchoring bias influences how much we are willing to pay for something. It causes us to jump at an offer without shopping around for a better one. We too readily accept market prices. In that context, do you know that different sick people pay huge price differences 
for medicine and medical supplies, regardless of where in the world they are made. Also, major price discrepancies exist between what some drivers pay for gas and oil compared to others, and this in the same state or province. And did you know about the colossal differences in price paid for electricity and internet services by citizens in one country versus another? All of this tells us how deeply our heuristic bias is anchored. While heuristic learning helps us to solve problems and speeds up our decision-making, it lets us produce errors in judgment and puts limits on our ability to innovate. Our neurological paradigms have all been etched in some relative past, so old heuristics can lead to inaccurate judgments about how things currently are. From my previous example, when did that roadwork construction slow the traffic? Is it still under repair? Heuristic learning draws on memory and brings a past to the present. The caution is that just because something was true before does not mean it's still true. In a universal continuum, things meld into a larger truth. Now part of a larger truth, a memory changes value and meaning. Relying on an existing view makes it difficult to see alternative views and to come up with new ideas. Heuristic learning can also contribute to stereotype casting and other prejudicial views, including out-and-out racism. Because the brain assembles its perceptions by making mental shortcuts that classify and categorize ideas, our neurological links often overlook relevant information, and so they create a warped category that is not in tune with the zeitgeist. The zeitgeist means the credence of the times. In my book, Invest in Your Creative Capital, I make it a point to mention why a person's creativity must be measured by what was known at the time of its manifestation. Einstein's work should only be discussed in light of the mathematics understood in 1904. There was a lag of 40 years between his statement that E equals MC squared and the first practical experiment that proved it. For the longest time in that man's career, not everyone was on board. The cognitive limits to our perception dictate that strategic thinking is needed in our daily life. Many people view the events and circumstances of their own lives as the result of karma, or good or bad luck, or an act of God, as serendipity, or even as part of an evil conspiracy. I got serious about strategy during my early involvement in the struggle for equal rights to access. I began my activism in 1980 when I met and befriended a quadriplegic who had been paralyzed five years longer than me and he was a lot worse off than I was, as he had very limited use of his hands and arms. He dove into a swimming pool and broke his neck. As he had no resources, he spent all that time in a hospital ward shared by five other peoples. He'd been institutionalized for seven years. He now lived in the same high-rise building as me, but because his rent was subsidized, he needed orderly care twice a day, and nursing care, and because he was on welfare, his lifestyle was constantly questioned, and he was even threatened with reinstitutionalization if he didn't comply with the wishes of a religious-minded social worker. 
His two great sins were, one, he had lady friends who visited, and two, he benefited from medical marijuana. This man was an adult, and he was also my first political cause. I believe the social system should just back off and let the man be, so I formed the Action Committee for Disabled People. Next, I introduced its mandate to the Community Council, a monthly forum where the political parties, community groups, and church leaders met to discuss local issues. I handed them a well-written whereas, whereby, and wherefrom document and got a 100% endorsement for my ideas. I began attending those monthly meetings and soon saw who was really running things. The community council had its own mandate, letters, patents, structure, members, and an executive. I found that a small group of people made every decision without ever consulting the board or the executive. They cited the need when they were called on it. Decisions were needed right away, but the board only met once a month. So to make sure things were being done for the good of all, I was elected to the board. A year later, I was elected to the executive. In that process, I learned that 90% of success is just showing up. Heuristic strategy says, just do it. While serving my term, I introduced ladder strategies into the decision-making process. As problems are very often caused by time lapses, leader ladders let us plot solutions as sequential events. Ladder strategies let us plan even to the tiniest detail. Basically, a ladder lets you plot strategy as a sequential steps, as in, they can do A, B, or C. If they choose A, we can do one, two, three. If they choose B, we can offer one, two, or four. But if they choose C, we'll counter with two and three. You can even look further down the rabbit hole. If we arrive at A3, we'll have a little more room to wiggle, so we can offer some four or five, etc. You can keep adding steps and plot deeper sequences into the strategy. When challenges are spontaneous or monumental, though, they demand that we use game theory strategies. This means a leader must predetermine what game he or she is playing. I've explained how we can play the game of life like good people, that is to say, with altruistic self-interest, or like bad people who have a totally selfish intention, even if it's detrimental to others. And we can react like stupid people who behave in a way that's detrimental to others even if it's detrimental to them too. Strategically, if a leader overlooks the patterns in signal in his environment, or if he or she doesn't read the challenges correctly, he or she will be blindsided by events or shortchanged in any deal. Leaders who don't think strategically lose because their view of the world is tainted by rose-colored glasses. That is, they see others as they wish them to be, rather than how they really are. If there's one way that all people truly are the same, it's this. Above all else, we are creatures of habit. Each person's behavior is related to his or her neurological past. Dr. Phil so often tells us that the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. People will reveal who they are over time, and being strategic means asking the right questions and being attentive to the answers. Let people reveal themselves. 
you'll be amazed at the result. Then, a kind of strategy that makes perfect sense comes in, and it's called preventive strategy. Prevention, of course, allows us to avoid a lot of the woes that happen to surround certain events and circumstances. I've traveled all over the world, and disabled as I am, you should know that I'm quite vulnerable. I have never once been any kind of danger, though, because my intuition has always directed me on how to avoid danger. Remember, the only link between you and every event in your life is you. You are indivisibly linked to every event and every circumstance in your life. Ladder strategies will allow you to map out scenarios and options and to specify what actions to plot for every contingent. Games theory strategies allow you to respond no matter what others might be plotting. What game will you play when change occurs? And then lastly, preventive strategies let you avoid obvious mistakes. Your strategy requires a predictable probability. What will your mana be? What is your most advantageous non-negotiated accord? If you choose love as a basic value, for example, then it predetermines how you will respond. If circumstances offer a violent possibility, you are limited to a non-violent response. A coward might act in a cowardly way, but that's not the same as choosing how to respond as a predictable probability. Then you'll be playing what's called a pure strategy, fixed and override and default modes. The strength from being a leader comes from this know-thyself decision. As you actualize your plan, concentrate on your strengths and seek out allies who can help you overcome your weaknesses. A warrior of spirit, be aware that doubts and fears only slow your progress. You can sabotage yourself a lot better than any rival can hurt you. Practice detachment by forcing yourself to always behave in a way that is above reproach. Strategically invest yourself wherever you can do the greatest good. By playing the five roles of a strategic thinker, you can reach all of your goals. So focus your time and energy on empowering yourself. Think about it. I'll be right back to discuss what I learned about becoming a persuasive communicator. The traditional model of communications is a process not far removed from the mass media model in which an addresser sends a message to an addressee. To be functional, the message needs to be about something the addressee will get. That is, it must have a language or code that can be transmitted and must, at least partially, be understood by the sender and the receiver. According to this view, the communication proceeds pretty much the same way whether it's an ordinary conversation, a speech, a letter, an email, or another narrative. There is always a message from a sender to a receiver. This view of communication is widely held, but it has a serious problem. It obviously has something to do with communicating, but on close inspection, it distorts the act of communication beyond recognition. Human communication, verbal or otherwise, differs from a media model because most human communication is interactive. Humans expect some kind of feedback from the message. In the media model, 
the message moves from sender to receiver, but where the real communications, the sender must consider the receiver's position and his or her estimated response before even sending a message. You don't normally wander through the woods talking to nobody. Even self-talk pretends that someone is listening. What we say depends on who we are saying it to. The sender considers the response that he might anticipate. To communicate with another person, we must be in contact with the mind that we want to address before we even start. We do this by relying on past relationships, by referring to random exchanges, by understanding what the person might be thinking, and in countless other ways. I must sense something about the other person that I want to relate with. Communications between humans are never a one-way street. We not only want a response, we will often shape our message to solicit the response we want. This is not to say that we know what the other person will answer, but we do imagine a range of possible responses and form a vague idea. To be an effective communicator, we must try to get inside the mind of the other before we send him or her a message. Receiving it, the other will then somehow try to read our mind to get our meeting. This is the paradox of human communications. It is intersubjective. We communicate from one subjective mind to another subjective mind. The media model of communication cannot do this as there is no precise algorithm for it. When leaders forget or ignore the subjective nature of communications, the outcomes can become predictably disastrous. This is particularly true in organizations where people mistake hierarchical power over employees as the capacity to make them listen and understand. Many leaders disregard, if they ever knew them, the pillars of an effective communication. The four pillars are, one, intention, and if it's seen as an edifice. Two, attention, if it's seen as a challenge. Three, empathy, if it's seen as power. And four, feedback, if it's seen as validation. The first pillar elevates a communication beyond the media sender-receiver model by considering the importance of the message itself on the receiver. If what you wish to communicate has importance at all, it deserves a suitable structure. If your intention is to influence someone, what kind of edifice will your message benefit from? Will you rent an arena? Does your pronouncement merit a cathedral? Should your language sound like it comes from a local tavern or from the corporate penthouse? How will you reach the receiver? I remember having been hired by a school board to animate the people in charge of building the school's curriculum. Somehow we got our wires crossed and I prepared my presentation for educators and university scholars who assess and determine what our children should learn. When I got to the venue, I found a room full of white-haired ladies and a couple of older guys, and I recognized my mistake. The people who do these kinds of jobs at the school board level are volunteers with some free time. People with grown children fit the bill as they have more free time and can volunteer for the extracurriculum projects, so I instantly changed my presentation and its edifice. I eliminated three slides from my PowerPoint to make things shorter and easier for them. And instead of pontificating about the latest findings 
to professional colleagues, I slowed my talk and imagined myself in a small room with the task of explaining some troublesome facts to a few friends. The first pillar examines your intent. Do you want to inform, to persuade, to sell, to convince, to seduce, or to apologize, to invoke appreciation or love, to cause fear or anger? How will you structure your message? What words are best to construct your edifice? The second pillar of an effective communication considers the receiver's attention. Today, people are bombarded with more information than ever before. A lot of it fake news from all kinds of sources, like political enemies, professional marketers, or everyday scammers and trolls. They prey on our need to know. Every morning when I open my inbox, I find over 100 emails, and most of them are unsolicited spam. I get a few phone calls every day from far-off places with strange accents trying to sell me something. Your message is competing with a heck of a lot of other stuff. If it's important, how will you get it to stand out from the rest? Will you use bold print, vivid colors, or an amusing song and dance? There's a real challenge involved. Can you tell exactly what you have to do with words, or will you need accurate numbers or charts or designs? A picture's worth a thousand words, so will a video do it better? Do you need a live show or something virtual or even something animated? And what will your headline be? What is your main message, the good news, the bad news, the real news? You might stay away from long, meandering sentences or dense paragraphs if you want to send a message that is clear, short, and sweet. What grade-level language will you use? College, high school, or grade four? Is there a jargon involved, like military lingo or government gab or banker and plumber talk? What's your elevator pitch? What can you get across in just a couple of seconds? The third pillar of an effective communication considers the receiver with empathy. Empathy is the capacity to understand or feel what another person is experiencing or to see from inside their frame of reference. This means having the capacity to place yourself in the other person's shoes. What do you suppose your message will invoke in the receiver? What about other interested parties? What about legal circles or as PR opportunities. Giving this some serious thought will give you power. I remember a client who had to confront someone high up the leader ladder in a government. We discussed it, and I advised him, you have to tell it straight and lay it all out. But remember, how you do it is what you are doing. Even the worst news can be shared without brutality. We can disagree without being disagreeable. There are five considerations if you must deliver bad news, and the first one is prepare the communication. Don't ad-lib bad news, or what might be perceived by the other as bad news. Things can much too easily get heated up and negatively emotional. People might think your news is unfair. They'll want to argue and fight back. The normal reaction is to kill the messenger, so don't let that happen to you. Stay calm so you can be ready to defuse any conflict. Whatever you do, don't throw fuel on the fire. Prepare what you have to say and be ready for anticipated reactions. How can you reason with that reaction? A second consideration 
suggest that you remind yourself why the bad news fills a need. You will more easily feel justified if you do this. If you're not the decision maker, find out how and why the decision was made and what other possibilities were considered. Have a clear sense of why you're doing something that is justified and legitimate. The third consideration wants you to be direct, but also to be as kind as you can. Don't sugarcoat bad news, but don't be cold win either. Get right to the point. Explain the reasons. Leave no room for misinterpretation. Remain stoic and yet compassionate. The fourth consideration when delivering bad news is to think carefully about how to build your edifice. Make sure you deliver any bad news in a way that respects privacy, that minimizes embarrassment to others, and that allows them to maintain their dignity. At the same time, give some thought to your own safety and well-being, because emotions can shift very quickly. And the fifth consideration is to never bargain the position. Don't let the conversation become a negotiation when it just can't be that. When someone receives bad news, it's natural for them to think, why me, or why did this have to happen? You want to answer those questions with respect. Empathy is about how you would feel if it was happening to you. The last pillar of an effective communication is feedback, if you see it as validation. Did the receiver interpret your message in the same way that you intended? Unless you ask him or her, you'll never know. Making decisions based on guesswork is a risky endeavor. Make the wrong decision and face a costly redo or a lot of wasted time. Leaders can't assume. They must validate their understandings directly and with the message receivers. And don't overlook the fact that providing feedback is only half the battle. Most leaders focus on giving feedback, but fail to grasp the important part of it. Feedback provides more than an opportunity to correct any miscommunications. Continuous feedback is highly effective strategy and should be used to make sure that things are done right the first time. Feedback is a powerful tool because it hits on both training and motivation. It not only reinforces what was understood, but it highlights what needs to be explained. If done well, seeking feedback inspires the receiver as to your intent and motivates him or her to act in the direction you want. As such, providing and receiving feedback are among the most important skills that a leader can develop. I promised to say something about the nurse who stayed with me during my fourth death experience. When I woke from it, perfectly well and free from infection, I saw her sitting there. I quietly told her that I was back and I was fine. She stood and looked at me, surprised. Then she turned and walked away. After just a few steps, she fell and collapsed into a faint. A nurse orderly ran over, helped her up and led her away. Later, when I inquired about her, I was told that she had been taken to emergency care. I tried to reach her for several days to thank her for taking care of me, but I didn't know her name and I came up blank. I put sufficient insistence into my inquiry, though, that after a few weeks I was told that she'd quit her job. About three months after I left the hospital, and now back at work in a business I own with a partner, a young woman came in and asked for me. Invited into my office, she walked in and asked, Hello, Mr. Poole, do you recognize me? I had to admit I did not, 
She identified herself as that nurse I'd been looking for, and I very excitedly and very warmly greeted her. She then told me how she had experienced my last adventure. She had sat there in a state of rigid attention for the longest time. I asked how long. She calculated that she had clocked in for one and a half eight-hour shifts and that she had taken no break. So she figured she'd work about three and a half hours when she was assigned to me, so she must have sat there for eight or ten hours. She became very confused as she realized that no one, not another person, not a single colleague, no supervisor, no doctor, had communicated with her for that entire period. No one, not one word. It was as if she had disappeared. Later, that bothered her at the deepest level because she wondered why they would leave her alone that way. Why didn't someone intervene? She sat there immobile, and at one point she even wondered if she was dead herself. She thought that if she moved, her body would drop and she as spirit would be free. So she didn't dare move a muscle. But she knew without reservation that she is not her body. She is a spirit with a body. She quit her job because of that experience. She didn't want a life wherein she had to make life and death decisions for another human being. She was no longer comfortable in a hospital setting. When I asked her why she had taken responsibility for me, what had made her sit next to me all of that time, she answered, you were so persuasive. You were so sure that I could not not do it. You knew what you were doing. I was deeply impressed with her extraordinary resolve. She told me that she now worked as a representative for a pharmaceutical company and was very happy. She was free and traveled the province of Quebec, connecting with administrators in the healthcare system. Like me, she rejoiced in nature's beauty and bounty. An adjunct to meeting her was my wanting to understand the levers of persuasion. The intelligence that convinced her to turn off the monitor and watch over me was not my own. I heard the exchange at the same time she did. Persuasion is an umbrella term meaning to influence others. When you try to influence beliefs, attitudes, intentions, motivations, or behaviors, you are being persuasive. There are eight ways to compel others with your influence. People will be persuaded if they think that you can reward them. People will be persuaded if they believe that you can punish them. They will be persuaded if you have the power to act on those two elements. And people will be persuaded if they believe that you have acted on them. This approach to persuasion, reward and punishment, is coercive, and it is subject to the law of diminishing returns. Coercion is a form of persuasion wherein we influence actions with threats and promises. The rules governing that behavior are such that you should recognize their limits. The more you reward someone, the less value that reward has. Constantly rewarding people leaves them jaded, so the reward becomes perceived as an entitlement and it gives them less value. Punishing a person often results in a resigned attitude and a general dullness to pain. You can only endure so much before you faint, and the brain releases soothing endorphins. 
Heuristic persuasion, on the other hand, is the process by which attitudes or beliefs are leveraged so people do change habits, emotions, or their own beliefs. People can be persuaded if they believe that you are an expert or a celebrity. If you have successfully integrated the change or behavior that you want them to adopt yourself. If you have built a positive relationship with them and if you appeal to their idea of good. Psychology sees persuasion through the lens of behavior. In business, persuasion is aimed at changing someone's attitude and that effort will require a specific edifice. Will you change ideas, moods, or the person itself? Will you use threats or kind words? Will you promise rewards? Persuasion is most often demonstrated by people who are in pursuit of personal gain. We try to change others to satisfy our professional ambitions or our positions in politics, sales, religion, or advocacy. Nature favors creative leaders. I've explained five roles that we are equipped to play. I said that we can be stalkers of information by activating our reptilian brainstem and spinal cord. We can also be dreamers of possibility by accessing our right brain's limbic system. Like the Jaguar Kings, we can shift moods to explore every possibility, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and become better seers of opportunity. Then we can access tribal logic, and like the Howler Monkey, we can learn to get good ideas by throwing out bad ones. We become leaders in action to adjust. If it doesn't work, then adjust again. If it still doesn't work, just keep adjusting until you get it. Then you'll have to become a persuasive communicator because others have not done that work. They'll have to be convinced. In the last episode, I said that with a little practice, we can play those five roles and live in a state of grace. You can learn how to stalk anything you desire. You can dream infinite possibilities, including an alternative to dying your way off of the planet. You can master how consciousness resonates in your brain from beta into alpha brainwaves and then to the theta and delta brainwave states as measured on the EEG machine. I said that you can learn to stop your inner dialogue and reach the omega point. You can see God face to face. You can live in a state of grace. In this presentation, I explain how practicing certain skills like pattern recognition, creating a good first impression, heuristic learning, and principled negotiation allow us to draw the very best from any situation. I said these aspects of strategy are important if you want to take a leadership role in life. And lastly, I explain four pillars of an effective communication, intent, attention, empathy, and feedback. I told you about eight levers that persuade people. I said four are coercive and four are heuristic. Heurism relies on how others experience you. You will be most persuasive if you think of others strategically. It was an exciting agenda. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time in episode number 11, Self-Management in Nature. From personal desire to self-motivation to self-empowerment, I'll explore the subject of how to manage with power. Don't miss that presentation. Folks, 
A listener told me that she gets a lot of good from my podcast when she reads the transcript when I'm speaking. If you want to try that, download a free copy at my website, www.thejungletimes.com. If you enjoyed this episode of the Jungle Times podcast, please give it a positive review. Subscribe to my channel and tell your friends about it. If you didn't like it, write and tell me why not. Thanks again. I'll see you next time. Adios. The Jungle Times podcast was written and animated by Lawrence Poole. If you enjoyed his presentation, share it with your friends and colleagues, click the like button, and leave your opinions in the comment section. Visit thejungletimes.com to learn more about Lawrence and his adventures. Follow him on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. You can order his latest book, Invest in Your Creative Capital, from Amazon.com. Subscribe to this channel in order to receive all the latest news. Thanks for listening. Music